as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Somebody told me that the country was very dry on the other side of Nevertire. It is. I wouldn't like to sit down on it anywhere. The least horrible spot in the bush, in a dry season, is where the bush isn't, where it has been cleared away and a green crop is trying to grow. They talk of settling people on the land. Better settle in it. I'd rather settle on the water at least until some gigantic system of irrigation is perfected in the West. Dr. Gregory Bryan just shared an excerpt from Henry Lawson's sketch in a dry season, detailing Lawson's train journey to Burke in 1892. I'm Anne-Marie Hansen, and together with Professor Bryan, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss two of Lawson's sketches depicting his journeys to and from Burke. Before we begin, we again say thank you to John Schumann and David Minear for kindly granting us permission to use musical excerpts from the Lawson album. Welcome, Dr. Brian. Welcome, Anne-Marie. It's good to see you again. Excellent to see you. Uh, we had a rather lively discussion of Lawson's changing or evolving uh, celebration of unions last week, and I'm looking forward to today talking about some of this writing wherein he portrays the area around Burke. Perhaps before we begin, you could remind me and our listeners about Henry's experience traveling around Burke. In our last uh, three episodes, I think, we've talked about him being in Burke, but perhaps, I, I'm not sure, I can't really remember, but I'm not sure that we actually ever did say why he was in Burke. But so I know that I think it was like three episodes ago, we talked about uh, some of his works that were based in Burke, and then we talked about my brother and myself walking in Henry Lawson's footsteps outside of Burke, and then in our last episode, we talked about uh, the impact that his being in Burke and in the shearing sheds outside of Burke, how, how that impacted his views of unionism. But so, so this was a really this was a really important time in his life. But as I said, I'm not sure that we actually have ever discussed why he was in Burke. So he actually arrived in Burke in September, the start of September in 1892, and he'd been sent there by his editor at the Bulletin, J.F. Archibald. Archibald and and Henry's friend uh, Ted Brady had hit upon this plan to send Henry to the bush because. Archibald in particular was really concerned by Henry's alcoholism. Archibald wanted Henry to get away from the, the drinking uh, culture, his uh, drinking mates, his drinking establishments that he frequented. And so Archibald bought him a train ticket from Sydney to Burke and gave him five pounds to get settled in Burke. And so, so, um, so that's what uh, Archibald did. Now, that was at that time, Burke was the end of the railway line, so it was as far away from Sydney as Archibald could possibly send Henry without you know sending him overseas on on some on a ship or something. So uh, five pounds and this train ticket is what Henry got, and uh, with that he headed off to Burke and he recorded his 
impressions of his journey to Burke in a dry season. And then later on, we're going to also discuss uh, his impressions of him leaving Burke about nine or ten months later in a wet season. Now, I, one other thing I should say. It, 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 I did say that uh, Archibald wanted Henry to get away from, from the drink in Sydney, but he also wanted Henry to work for him and work for the Bulletin. And at that particular time, Burke and the surrounding countryside was a hotbed of union activity. And so it is important to remember that, that this wasn't just some sort of a uh, dry tank for Henry to, to get better but it was indeed a place that he was sent to do work and to, um, to you know, act as a journalist, essentially, for the Bulletin, reporting on union matters as they were occurring in, in uh, outback New South Wales and outback Queensland. I mentioned in a dry season, so we'll, we'll start with our discussion uh, there. So what did you make of that particular piece? Uh, what thoughts came to mind as you are reading uh, in a dry season, another gem of Lawson's. I enjoyed it very much, uh, especially alongside the story, second story we'll talk today because I think they're they're a lovely contrast. I had two reactions upon my first reading. I the you know words that came to mind would be predictability or stasis, and like just the opening of the story starts with draw a wire fence and a few ragged gums and add some scattered sheep running away from the train. Then you'll have the bush all along the New South Wales Western line from Bathurst on. And so in there, he's giving instructions and he returns to it uh, later with, by way of variety, the artist might add blank. And so he's giving this visual through language picture of this place that seems to be pretty predictable, right? Consisting of the railway towns and the public houses and the general stores and and sort of the sites that a passenger might see as they move along this rail line. And it seemed heavy in its repetitiveness in terms of the sites that one might come across. But then as I pulled back from my reading of the story, the people that populated this rail line the types of figures, the characters in both meanings of that word that populate this rather predictable line stayed with me. And so it seemed that after a first read, one might be left with an impression of predictability. But within that are these wonderful figures, these individuals that populate this area of perhaps stasis. How about, how about you? No, I, I don't disagree with that. So where you're using the, the term predictable or predictability, I, I think mundane is perhaps, is, mm. is, is that that's what you mean? Yeah, yeah. so I, 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 I agree with that, that, uh, that Henry's not finding it very enticing or appealing. And remember, if we go back several episodes talking about the uh, bush battle with Banjo Patterson, I mean, this is what Henry's position was, remembering that that was occurring at this particular time, was that the bush was not a, an enticing or appealing place. And I guess uh, Henry's view is just being solidified as he looks out the train window and, and the things that he sees, that, uh, that this is a rather dreary place to be and, and not at all an attractive place. 
but yeah, the but the, the I guess the flip side that you're pointing out is that hey, there are these characters that are really interesting and and rather or anything but mundane. One of the characters that he makes mention of is the bush liar, and and we can talk <laughs> about him and others. But so I think that uh, the way that uh, Henry describes these characters is is really uh, insightful and really interesting, and he and anything but predictable or mundane. I guess one. So up. So you go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that uh, one of the uh, the characters, just this idea of Henry being in the outback, and yet there's this idea that well, there's even more further on. Henry wrote, somebody said to me, you want to go out back, young man, if you want to see the country. You want to get away from the line. So, I mean, go further, you know, further away from the, this uh, train line, this railway line. And Henry's response is, I don't want to. I've been there. So, and, of course, he's remembering his childhood. So, yeah, so you want to go out back. That's sort of this uh, this wonderful notion that everything you know, is exciting and interesting out back, go further on, but Henry has no interest in that. I don't want to. I've been there. Well, yeah, and the harshness. He doesn't want to. I mean, one of the lines is, uh, death is about the only cheerful thing in the bush. So clearly uh, not enamored by this area, but the characterization of some of the people that populated, as you mentioned, certainly give this perhaps mundane place a lot of life. And right. I'm wondering which of these characters stood out to you? Well, I guess one of them was that, that idea of this, uh, this person saying you want to go out back or you want to get away from the line. But another one, as I mentioned, was this bush liar. And I can picture this person, you know, jumping on the train and being f- so full of himself and being very boastful. I really like the line where Henry talks about, you know, that he says that he fought Pat, uh, Patty somebody. He's got on the train. He's saying how wonderful he is. He's got... Yeah, and knocked out Patty somebody yeah, in one round. In one round, that's right. And he gave the super, so the supervisor at the last uh, place that he worked, he, at the last station where he's sure he gave the super the father of a hiding. The super was a big chap, about six foot three. All right, so this this guy, you know, he's just uh, telling everybody who's who cares to listen what a great scrapper he is. He also said he learned butchering in a day. He said that uh, he could he had uh, three or four sheds to go to, so he had all of this work lined up, all of these bosses that were waiting for him to get there. He had telegrams in his pocket from half a dozen squatters and supers offering him pens on any terms. So, I mean, uh, shearing pens, so, you know, just name your own price. That's how wonderful he was, or at least how, how wonderful he pretended to be. So yeah. so I like that, and the, just the way, the sort of the understated way that Henry said, we met the bush liar in all his glory. And then, of course, we have a very succinct uh, description of what happens to the bush liar. Well, and it's interesting, I, I was talking about how the individuals populate this mundane place, but even in the individuals, there is like a title or an epithet of sorts, right? The sundowner, the bush liar. And so even actually in our discussion is coming up, even the individuals are slightly mundane or slightly predictable. Hmm. Yeah. So that uh, bush liar, he gets, uh, 
Here a quiet looking bushman in a corner of the carriage grew restless and presently he opened his mouth and took the lyre down in about three minutes. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm an outsider, a Canadian gal, so I'm not exactly sure I understand, but he writes, and I'll maybe just quote it, then he has to explain matters to, the, to a publican and a coach driver. God bless the publican and the coach driver. God forgive our social system. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could fill in a little context right. for me. So, so in that particular uh, paragraph, he's talking about somebody, an unemployed person, who has been sent out back because this job has arisen. So the Government Labor Bureau is the organization that Henry refers to. So they've given this unemployed man a letter, all right, so a letter of introduction, and uh, apparently have organized this job for him. So this person from the city, presumably from Sydney, has gone out back because there's a job opportunity. Now, Henry says that this person has no idea where the job actually is. He's been sent to Burke, but he doesn't realize that when he gets to Burke, I think Henry says that it's uh, 80 or 100 miles away. So somehow he has to get from Burke to this station, this job that's 80 or 100 miles away. And in his ignorance, this uh, unemployed man, he says he has no food in his pockets or anything. He says he travels for a night and a day. This is traveling on the train that he's talking about without a bite to eat. Okay, but then he still has these other 80 or 100 miles to walk to get to this job. So, I mean, it's, it's a day and a half on the train, but how many extra days is it going to be before he gets to the job? So this, this, this is why Henry says, you know, God bless the publican. Presumably the publican has given, probably given him a place to stay for a night to, to recover from the train travel and probably also given him a little bit to eat as well. And the coach driver. And so, you know, probably somebody on a coach what you know has actually taken him out to the job so that he doesn't have to walk. And then Henry says, God forgive our social system. And our social system is that reference back to the Government Labor Bureau. So the, the, the government is trying to alleviate the unemployment problem by uh, finding these jobs for people. But these people have no idea what they're getting themselves into. Right. And yeah, there seems to be this confusion or this lack of recognition within a variety of people it's like they aren't quite aware of the realities of the place right you see i mean literally the um sundowner seems completely confused right even and even the what do we what does he call them the bush liar right is just not at all in touch with the reality of the situation and then you have this this guy who is completely ill-equipped to deal with the 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 situation at hand and so within this world though they're interesting and interestingly wrought characters they there is this commonality between them and that there is this sort of disconnect from the harshness that they will surely have to confront once they arrive right and and i have previously mentioned you know this is again this is the 1890s and i'd mentioned that uh, the economic depression in australia at that time was very very uh, fierce and even more so perhaps than the, the great so-called Great Depression of the 1930s. So there were lots of people like this particular man, this unemployed man, who were just looking for work and, and were willing to travel wherever they had to to get a job. 
but they, you know, as you're saying, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into in terms of the distances, but also the harshness of the country that they were um, heading off into. Now, you, you mentioned the, the, the sundowner. I think that that's an interesting, you know, in terms of one of the characters, you know, Henry, I just this is just something that he sees out the window of the train. So Henry doesn't get any and doesn't provide any great detail about his character. But he does provide an interesting description of his actions. And I think that they contrast really in, in an interesting manner with a similar type of person that Henry describes in the second piece, the inner wet season. In a dry season, Henry looks out the window and he sees this sundown. He's carrying a Royal Alfred, so that's a, a type of a swag. And he also has a stick. And Henry says that I thought he was mad because the man rushes forward with his stick in his hand and Henry thinks that he's going to attack the train. But in fact, he was actually attacking a snake. He says uh, he was only killing a snake. I see that as a way... Henry's saying this person was spirited, right? He, he, he says... He ran forward boldly flourishing the stick. So he has some energy and some spirit about him. But then when we have the return journey and Henry looks out the window, he, sees an, he says, we saw another swagman. He didn't seem to have heart enough to bother about trying to avoid the worst mud holes. And we mm. saw a ghastly beardless face which turned neither to the right nor the left as the train passed him by. So on his, on his way back, Henry's, you know, description, depiction of, you know, these, these type of people, you know, on the way back, he's just a completely broken, spiritless individual. So I think that that's an interesting contrast, just in the terms mm. of the way that Henry describes them. Now, it's interesting because these both are autobiographical about his journeys to and from uh, Burke. It's interesting to wonder about how much of these are what he saw versus how he interpreted what he saw. You know, so did he re did the, was this person that he saw, you know, going to Burke so much different to the one that he saw on the way back? I don't know. But maybe Henry interpreted it in a different way just because of Henry's own experiences, his own somewhat breaking experiences um, in the outback and in the shearing sheds as we've previously discussed. So again, you know, is that Henry imposing some sort of an interpretation on it? Or did he actually, did he actually, you know, see somebody who really was just sort of dragging his body through the, through the puddles and the mud versus the one who was boldly flourishing a stick on the uh, original journey? So I think that's an interesting uh, question to ask. You know, how much here is actually what Henry saw with his eyes versus what he thought about what he saw, you know, with his mind? Well, it's interesting because tones in the, the two co stories contrast. And I'm wondering, Lawson depicts virtually the same physical experience, right, on a train traveling through the countryside, but he does it in the two different seasons, the dry and the wet season. So what, if, if anything, do you think is revealed in addition to perhaps Henry's changing perspective of this experience through this seasonal variation? Yeah, well, well, f first of all, I think that they're, they're accurate in terms of the inner dry season. His travel was, as I said earlier, was September of 1892. So it was spring 
and spring in I mean m most of the year anyway in Burke is rather hot but it was it was hot and getting hotter right whereas in the in a wet season his Henry's departure was in June of 1893 so I mean it was the middle of the Australian winter right so I think that we see that we do see the different seasons however I think that in both instances we see that Henry is finding the outback off-putting. So whether it's dry or whether it's wet, it is not a desirable place. In a dry season, I'll just use Henry's word, Henry actually uses the word horrible. And in a wet season, he describes it as indescribably dismal and unspeakably dreary. So we see, I think I'm responding to your question, that regardless of the, the uh, season, it's just not a good place to be anyway. And it's interesting because I'm from Canada. And so when I first read the stories, I had I, I had to map them out. Like I took down where where it begins and the next stop and the next stop. And when I read Never Tire, I thought that was a hilarious made up name for yeah. a place because it just fits this, the, the situation so perfectly. But then when trying to figure out the roots, I Google mapped it and never tires indeed a real place. Right. But what I found, right, was that, uh, and I didn't know this when I first read them, was that the dry season seems to to pick the movement inland, right? And then the wet season is showing it in, in reversed, reverse. And I mean, you've made the connections to Lawson's motivation for going to Burke in, to begin with. But do you think that there's any other significance about presenting these this similar experience through different direction well it's autobiographical writing so i mean he did go to burke and then he went back to sydney in terms of his departure so i mean i talked about i talked about uh you know archibald giving him the train ticket and it is it is significant that he just gave him a one-way train ticket so archibald saying you know here you go go to burke figure out figure it out you've got five pounds to spend figure it out so Henry goes to Burke, but as I said, he's just got a, he has got no way to get back to Sydney, of course, other than um, to earn and save money. But that just wasn't the way that Henry Lawson was wired. It was, I mean, it's an admirable quality of his, but also a terrible weakness of his as well, that any time he got any money, he would just spend it. And not just on himself, but in fact, most often on his friends, on his mates, right? And unfortunately, a lot of it was spent in the pub. So Henry was just not able to, um, to save. And this, this becomes a problem later on when he gets married and he has children, right? And, and as soon as he gets money, he spends it. But so Henry's in Burke. So, I mean, he's, he's been to, uh, to Rally Shearing Shed and he's been to Hungerford, but now he's back in Burke. And so he's back in Burke for about uh, five, four or five months or so. And, and he has said, you know, in his letters back to Sydney to his friends and to his auntie Emma and, and such, he's talked about the fact that he wants to get back to Sydney. And in fact, he says, you know, he's going to get back and he, never to face the bush again is one of the, the phrases that he uses in one of these letters. So he's, he's fed up with the outback and he doesn't want to get, get back. He wants to get back to Sydney as soon as possible and never go into the bush again. But he's got to find out, figure out a way to get the money to, to do that. And so in a wet season, Henry says that he, he said, we had haunted local influence at come and have a drink. Now, come and have a drink is a, uh, a name that he uses not just here, but in other works as well when he's referring to Burke. So that's what he's given 
that that's that's a reference to Burke. So we'd haunted local influence at come and have a drink for two long, anxious, heartbreaking weeks. What he's saying here is that he's going to everybody he knows in Burke, especially those with some sort of influence and therefore probably some sort of money. And he's, he's I think, practically begging them for a train ticket to get back to Sydney. And there's somebody, he doesn't tell us who, but somebody hits on an idea of how Henry can get back essentially for free. He says, we got the pass. He says, we had put up with all the indignities, the humiliation. We, in short, had suffered all that poor devils suffer while besieging local influence. We only thought of escaping the bush. But as I say, he got this pass. And what it is, is a drover's pass. Now, there's a stock agent in Burke called, J the, the name of the firm is J. Anderson & Co. Henry actually later writes a very, very thinly veiled poem about or in appreciation of this J. Anderson. And he actually calls it Peter Anderson & Co. And we've talked about that thin veiling that uh, Henry does. We, we talked about that before. But so Peter Anderson and Co. is a poem about Peter about this J. Anderson. And so, as I say, he was an agent, a stock agent. And so there were thousands of head of livestock that would go through Burke each year. I can't remember the figures, but I know that I included them in, um, in my book, Mates. And as I recall, it was like, whatever it may have been, 16,000 head of cattle and, and I think like close to 150 head, sorry, 150,000 head of sheep that went through Burke. So somebody needed to accompany them. It's, Henry says in his, uh, in a wet season, Henry says that the regulation stated that there needed to be a drover for every five cattle cars. And so uh, this Jay Anderson came up with the idea, well, why don't you just be a drover to accompany this next um, shipment of, of cattle that I'm sending, you know, further south. And so that's how Henry actually gets back to Sydney, as he gets this free pass as the drover accompanying these five train lot, these five uh, train car cars of cattle. Now, presumably, I don't understand it fully, but presumably, you know, it was his job every time they, they stopped, you know, he might have had to check on the cattle, maybe make sure that one of them hasn't fallen over and was getting trampled by the others or maybe make sure that they had water or, or something along those lines. So that was his job in accompanying the cattle. Now Henry says that he actually read the note that he was given, a, a letter of introduction and instruction. He read it and found out that the cattle weren't going to Sydney like he had thought anyway. So then Henry says something to the effect of, you know, we took no further interest in those cattle or whatever. So who knows where they ended up or what sort of state they were in. But by this stage, Henry didn't care. He just knew that he was on the way back to Sydney and essentially the cattle could look after themselves, I think. That, that's fascinating to find out because I obviously don't have that background knowledge about the, I'm not, would you call it the droving ticket? Well, the yeah, but Henry calls it a pass, and and this is another. This is a fact that's verified again. If we go back to Jim Gordon and his notes about his experiences with Henry Lawson, Hen, uh, Jim Gordon did verify that that this this um, this Anderson uh, stock agency did provide for Henry a means to get back to Sydney. So I mean, this is not just. I mean, who who knows? You know, 
them, um, you know, I expect there's some embellishment in these stories, some dressing it up of things, but uh, essentially they are autobiographical journalistic sketches of Henry's experiences, including this uh, this role of being a drover with these uh, five cars of cattle. So you would, so based on what this autobiographical information, it seems that in a wet season, the he would be much more optimistic because he's going back to where he wants to be. Correct. Right, and and you you this is something that you notice certainly in the tones of the two stories or the two sketches. Uh, particularly at the end, right? This is this is a point that you had uh, that you had made uh, in your discussions with me. Was and it's, well, so in fact, why don't I just turn that over to you? What do you make of the different tones and and particularly the way that they end? It's wonderful to learn this information because I I think just as you were unfolding the autobiographical detail, my impression of the ending changed considerably, or the reason behind it. Right. Because the ending of a wet season is so much more hopeful. Right. The weather clears. The sunlight comes out. They deserve it all as much rain as they need, etc. And at the end of in a dry season, you've got a rather negative impression. Right. The camels come out at 530. Yeah, there's something, there's something snaky, snaky. Yeah. about camels. And then the concluding line I found so cold. Somebody said, comma here's Burke, period. And so there was just this, a lack of emotion, a lack of energy in that concluding phrase. And I, I, I now understand a little bit more why. Well, it's, right? he it's was a not- very abrupt ending and, it, and there is no, you know, wonderful sunshine with, with an appropriate amount of rain mixed in, you know, that we do get in, in the wet season. You know, the sunlight comes out and everything is bright and rosy because that's Henry's, as Henry saw it, and of course we know in reality this is not what happened, but as Henry saw it, his, his worries were over. You know, he was back where he wanted to be. And that's interesting, you know, the, because of the way that Henry thought about that. One of my favourite, I guess, episodes in, in these stories, so I mentioned this pass, this drover's pass. It turns out it actually, unlike Archibald's uh, train ticket, this drover's pass actually was a return trip. So Henry did have the opportunity, he says, to return to Burke in, within two days. Now, of course, Henry didn't want to do that. So he had this return trip essentially going to waste in his back pocket. And somebody begs him for it. He says, um, we might have given the pass away to an unemployed in Orange. So again, one of these unemployed people who, who wants to get out there, wants to, because maybe he can find some work out there. An unemployed in Orange who wanted to go out back and who begged for it with tears in his eyes. But I just love what Henry says. But we didn't like to injure a poor fool who never injured us, who was an entire stranger to us. He didn't know what outback meant. So Henry, essentially, I know better than you. You don't really want to go out there. And so... In the out of the goodness of his heart, Henry refused to give it to him, even though he was crying. He was begging and crying for it. So, you know, again, is is that uh, all uh, fair dinkum? Is it exactly as it happened, or has he taken some sort of literary license there to embellish it and dress it up? I don't know, 
But there's enough details in both of these stories that, that actually are veri verified by newspapers and by Jim Gordon's recollections, etc. I think we're on fairly safe ground to assume, well, if, if this thing's true, well, why wouldn't this other thing be true? And if this next thing is true, well, why wouldn't this next thing be also true? So, you know, I suspect that there probably was somebody who did literally beg him with tears in his eyes for this pass and Henry refused to give it to him. Certainly in this uh, pair of stories, you certainly get Lawson's disdain for this area. And it's fascinating to see whether uh, how he uses perhaps autobiographical details and peppers them throughout the works and to what extent he throws in his creative genius. Uh, to me, it feels considerable because I don't have the autobiographical detail to, to layer it all on. Right. So to me, when I read this, I, to me, it, it seems like a creative genius showing through space, place and people what it felt like to move into a realm of dread and what it felt like to return to a sense of optimism. And so whether it is factually true or imaginatively inspired, what we get there, I think, is the truth of Lawson's feeling in these two journeys. Was there any other particular favorite piece that you'd like to uh, point out before we wrap things up, Anne-Marie? No, I'm just grateful that I had a chance to learn a little bit about, more about how Lawson's life fits in with Lawson's literature. So thank you, thank you so much for sharing those details today. Well, um, thank you. I, uh, I, you know, I think these are a couple of my own personal favorites, although I know I've said that about several of the <laughs> works that we've looked at. But yeah, no, I just love these. And having having been to Burke and made these trips, just as Henry did, you know, we took the, when Baz and I went, we took the train from Sydney. Uh, I can't remember how far it goes, but it doesn't go all the way to Burke anymore. So then we have to jump on a bus. But so it, these, these sorts of uh, adventures can still be recreated. And you look out the train or the bus window and see those things that Henry saw and wrote about. Well, just in your book, To Hell and High Water, you, you get this double sense, too, of it being a place of, well, hell, um, for its various reasons, but also a place that can be transformative. And so, yeah, I think that the connections to Lawson's experience, though full of struggle, it certainly did give him, I'll steal one of your words, fodder for his creative production. And so an, an interesting parallel there. Yeah, no, and I like the uh, transformative suggestion too. And I think also, despite its difficulties, it can also be restorative as well. So it has the potential, no doubt, to absolutely break people. It broke me at times and it broke Henry at times and it broke people that Henry described at times. But it also, in coming out the other end, it can also restore one. And uh, so, yeah, there's, it's, there's no doubt it's a magical place. And, you know, today we just focused on a small place, a small geographical area in uh, Henry Lawson's uh, life and travels. But in our next episode, we're going to go a little bit further afield and we're going to discuss Henry's experiences when he traveled to New Zealand. In fact, he made three different trips to New Zealand in 1893, 1896 and 1897. So we'll talk about them in our next episode. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will hope you join us next week as we explore what motivated Lawson's travels to New Zealand, what he did while he was there, 
and the relationship between New Zealand and his writings. Thank you, Dr. Brian. Thank you. I remember, oh man, I remember the tracks that we followed to clear the jovial last nights of December, the solemn first days of the year. Long tramps through the clearings of the timber, short partings on platform and pier. I remember, oh man, I remember the tracks that we followed are clear.